You're listening to No Lies Radio, coming to you 24-7 from the San Francisco Bay Area, north of Berkeley. Your radio station for the truth, peace, justice, freedom, and more power to the people. Welcome to PSI Saturday, Explorations in Paranormal Research. Today, Gene Steinberg and David Biedney of theparacast.com interview world-renowned paranormal author Brad Steiger. He begins with the Texas UFO sightings and then spirals into various UFO theories and lands in worlds before our own. In between is a pretty no-holds-barred, wild and free-raging discussion. Today's show is broadcast courtesy of theparacast.com, and you can listen to the latest show from theparacast.com broadcast every Sunday at 6 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Central, 9 p.m. Eastern, and on Mondays at 0200 hours GMT. Go to theparacast.com to listen. And now, on to today's show. Brad Steiger, welcome back. We have you for two hours this time, okay? So just take a stiff drink (laughs) and get ready. But first, you and I and David, we've all been reading about all these new UFO sighting reports coming out of Texas. Now, obviously you haven't been down there yet, but have you a sense of where they fit in with the whole picture? Mm, Well, that's very interesting. Before it hit the papers, someone from Stephenville to me and said... uh, Here's something that appeared in our local paper. I don't know if it's going to be picked up by, hmm. by the national papers. You know, talk about foreshadowing. Huh. But if, uh, she said, uh, you may be interested in this. So I sent it around to a couple of papers and so forth there on, on the net. And then bang. Of course, now that's all we've been hearing. And guys, come on. It's come down to the same thing. It's airplanes. It's military planes flying in formation they're dropping flares they're saying i mean it's the same old excuses that come trotting out whether they see an object whether they stand below and the stars are blotted out it's still you know they're just falling back on the same litany that they did for the phoenix lights Hmm. i think they're relaying it to that kind of similar now it was funny the other night i saw you should forgive the expression david all right bill o'reilly hold your tongue hold your stomach he interviewed two witnesses And he said, quote, unquote, I believe you saw something. He took it very seriously. Took it very seriously. We were surprised. We were amazed he said that. Right. Is this a good thing? (laughs) I mean, okay, so the psychotic fascist scum believes they saw something. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm not supposed to interject my politics into the show. I'm sorry. I apologize, Gene, and the listeners who are offended by, you know, the reality of the nightmare we live in. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Please continue. Brad, try to bring some sense to this discussion. Well, they saw something. Look, this was like the Larry King. Yeah, they saw something, and we always watch uh, Bill O'Reilly just to get our blood pressure going. Uh, You might try that tack. 
Yeah, yes, we were quite surprised because he, you know, he didn't call them pinheads. Or he didn't call them uh, any uh, deprecating terms, but he said, you know, I believe you saw something. Then he said, of course, I wasn't there. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Which none of us were there. None of us saw it. But from all the reports that I've been getting from people in the area, not just the newspaper, the people who've seen it just got a, a letter from a very well educated very well placed engineer who lives near there and uh, he's been checking it out and you know there there this is the thing you know it doesn't make any difference how many credible witnesses we pile up how many impeccable credentials they may have we're still going to fall back on maga the unsmiling cynic and skeptic and uh, Shermer, the smiling cynic and skeptic saying you know it's the same old thing it's lights in the sky it's stars it's venus it's flares being dropped it's fighter planes flying in formation you know they just fall back on that every time i don't know when we're going to crack through that kind of veneer that they've established but uh, gene you know and and dave uh, I don't know if you've been in this field as long as Gene and I have, but, you know, these are very familiar excuses to us, and it's the same ones they're trotting out every time. Well, the thing is, I saw that clip of McGaugh on the the Larry King show that happened where they were talking to James Fox and and Stan Mm -hmm. Freed and those witnesses, and it's disingenuous for the man to say, and he said it just like Shermer said it on that show, I think they did for the Roswell anniversary, where both of these guys said, and they went on record with the statement that airplane pilots are no more uh, reliable as witnesses of visual phenomena as average people. And I, th- I thought to myself, how can they say this with a straight face? Look, when we heard that, Gene, Sherry and I looked at each other and we said, dear God, they'd better be more than that. They're flying overhead, allegedly, to protect us. If they can't distinguish what they're seeing, you know, we might as well send truck drivers up there. Oh, well, the, the hell with protecting us. We get on the planes and they fly us from A to B. I want them to be really good at being able right. to look out to the sky want, and know what the heck is something. Well, autopilots fly the planes. No, I, these I was guys just going to say, exactly. Uh, we got robots flying the airplane. Right. We want the pilots there to be looking for things, looking out for things. And now, if for, pilots cannot observe, then you know, what do they do? Well, obviously, that's what they're doing. And so it, it, I think it rings hollow when these guys say this. And I think that the audience understands that. And when you look at the faces of the witnesses who are saying, no, you know, we know what planes are. We've seen lights in the sky. And when you have yeah. something that's a mile wide blocking out the sky, it's not a plane. It, that's real simple. But here's the thing. So you have these guys trotting the stuff out. But then there are the things that aren't said on Larry King's show. For example, something that... I seem to be reading on the internet is that these sightings were going on in that area of Texas for a few days. This just wasn't a one shot. Yes, yes, yes. As I said, uh, I received probably three days before the national papers picked it up. I I received from from a lady who lived in the area and who was seeing them. So, I mean, you're absolutely right. It was going on. And it's a pocket down there, as this person was saying, and as the engineer that I heard uh, from said, you know, this is like a little, uh, anyway, pocket and area where they've been sighting these things for quite some time. Now, we had a recent case in Oklahoma City. 
the my friend Hayden Hughes, whom I know you're familiar with, sure. sent me a photograph, and he said, you know, I don't have time to check this out. Can you check it out? Well, I have some very, very fine photographic experts upon whom I rely, and they're they're let's put it this way: they'd like to believe, but yet. They, they're not so ingenuous that they just say, oh, wow, that's a light. I mean, they're really picky. I mean, I send them some of the best ghost pictures that I want them to say, oh, wow. And they say, no, no, it's this and it's that. So I sent this picture to three of them, and every one of them said, you know, we can't explain it by this. They do the Pixar thing. They break it down. They do all that. And this is a genuine photograph. We don't know what it is. Okay, then I sent it to the observatory there. The observatory in Oklahoma City said, we don't know what it is. It, it is not this or that. We checked with the airport. And, of course, once we promoted that in terms of releasing it, I don't mean we went out and ballyhooed it. We just released it to the public and on the Internet. And, of course, we got the same old thing. Well, you know, it is close to an airport, and that's just an airplane. I mean, you know, you just... As I heard, I think it was James Fox say the other night, you know, what will you guys accept? Well, they won't accept anything other than landing on the White House lawn. And uh, they tried that in 51, and it didn't work. So I, I don't know. We're, we're just up against that steel curtain of skepticism and, and official doubt. Yeah, I just wanted to kind of backtrack pretty quickly here. You know, David is a world-class photo imaging expert. And any pictures that you have that are worth his while, you ought to be sending to him, you know? I will. I'll add him to the list. I will make five, five experts I got then. And when all four before, and if David had seen it, I would love to see his reaction. But I shall indeed put David on the list. And so these are all people just like David, you know, who, you know, gee, we want it to be real, but we're not going to say it's real unless we're convinced. And I don't want them to. You know, I, I don't want to go off, put my, my reputation on the line, and then someone says, well, it's obviously this or that, you know. So th these people, uh, I need the people, you know, who are really picky, but yet are not died in the wool skeptics as Stanton Friedman said uh, to McGaw the other night when Larry King asked him you know what well you know McGaw has already made up his mind that there are no UFOs and so therefore you know he's never going to admit it you're talking to a dogmatist you're talking to a scientific fundamentalist so you're never going to get through that uh, denial it would be really great if I could see those pictures, Brad. I'd love to take a look at them and give you a realistic read on them. But something that I've been telling people are that another sh friend of the show, Jeff Ritzman, and I have become sort of the, the go-to image processing experts on a website called Above Top Secret. We've looked at a lot of stuff, and here's what happens. People want you to say, okay, this is real, but then it's the other stuff they want you to say. This is real. It's an extraterrestrial. It's here to help us. Now, no, the no. thing is, with a photograph, I mean, you can do the best photographic and video analysis in the world. You can rule out all the things that a photograph isn't. That's fairly straightforward. But I think the problem here is that people have a very high level of expectation. And at the end of the process, they want you to make some de definitive statements and determinations about what the craft is, who or what's in it. Where are they from? Why are they here? And, and honestly, no, I don't think no. we're ever going to get to the point where we can make definitive statements. Okay, so here's a photograph. What is it? We don't know. It's a UFO. And what that means is 
unidentified flying object. There is right. no extraterrestrial connotation, and this is one of the things that wasn't said on the Larry King show that I think at this point is something we all need to start talking about to move this conversation forward. Stan Friedman is a friend of the show. We very much respect him. We love having him on the show. The problem is when you mention Stan, alternate theories besides what he calls the nuts and bolts theory of extraterrestrial craft, he gets very uncomfortable. Now, I understand why he does yeah. this. It's, it's yeah. completely reasonable for him to take that position. But the thing is, here we've got 60 years of this kind of research work. Where do you feel we are now compared to where we were 40 years ago? Have we made any progress? I don't think so. I've got to confess something to you. you know, that when I really got into UFO research, I mean, I was into parapsychology, psychical research, and UFOs because of, I think, a personal incident of embarrassment that I told you long ago. I decided, you know, I'm not going to be put on the line because I... I have mistaken some natural phenomenon or this or that. And, and then I was reading with interest. You know, I was reading what Mosley sent, and I was reading what Beckley sent and so forth. And I said, well, you know, that's an interesting position. I will follow it as someone who likes to stay on top of the paranormal. Well, then when I wrote the UFO book, Strangers from the Skies, it took off. And then I wrote a couple more, and they really took off. And then I really got into it. One of the major disappointments of my life, I went into this field accepting the nuts and bolts. They are here. I mean, I, I bought into that. I'll admit that. Mm -hmm. Now, after I had been into it about three years, I said, I was never so disappointed in my life. I thought, this is... I'm talking to people who have had experiences. I'm talking to eyewitnesses. I traveled at that time, Gene, and you know it. I went from coast to coast. I went up to Canada. I had some uh, flying farmer friends who were, were into it because they had chased UFOs in Korea. So we'd hear about a sighting and wherever, and we'd take off in the little single-engine plane. You know, we'd, we'd fly to these places. We'd interview people. And I thought, they're telling me the same thing that I've been hearing in spiritualist camps, that I've been hearing from people who are mediums. What we have here is another expression, another progression of some kind of spirituality. We're talking about metaphysics here. And as you know, I've taken the multidimensional, ultra-dimensional theory ever since, ever since the late 60s. Now, of course, that does not preclude that there's alien life. That does not preclude that we are, have been visited and are being visited. But I think the majority, the great majority of the UFO phenomena fits into the category of the spiritual, the psychic, the metaphysical, the multidimensional, the hyperspace, the hyperdimensional theories. Well, I'll tell you what, that's something we want to get into in more detail in a moment. On the PowerCast, we have Brad Steiger, author, lecturer. Sometimes we call him the man about town, but David doesn't like me to refer to people as men about town except for himself, so I won't. He's author of over 160 books, and recently you had one of more of your books reprinted after a number of years, Atlantis Rising. Yes. Yes, and that is really cool that you've got that back in print and available to a new generation of listeners and readers. 
That's really nice. Let's continue in this vein. Okay, so UFOs are something other than spaceships. What about the theory that we've talked about on the show, crypto-terrestrials, another race coexisting with us under the sea, in the mountains, in the caves, whatever? And that, of course, uh, composed three chapters at least of Atlantis Rising that you just referred to. Coincidentally. And I think you kind of knew that. Uh, at any rate, Atlantis Rising, you know, came out in, well, actually wrote it in 70 or 68, 69. And then one of those strange little things that happened, Disney was going to take an option on the book. Hmm. They were going to do an Atlantis movie. So, I mean, wow, we met with them. We did the whole thing. Well, as it turned out, you know, all I got was six Mickey Mouse uh, pens to give to <laughs> my kids. So, <laughs> uh, you know how it happens. Optioning and actually making the film are two different things. So this book then was delayed publication. Otherwise, it would have come out before Von Donneken. It would have come out before that whole um, ancient astronaut tribe of writers. The theory that I did, and this has been one of my most popular books. It went into 12 printings at the time. It's been printed in several foreign languages because I take 10 theories of what it Atlantis is, could be, could have been. First of all, I begin by saying whatever Atlantis was, as a species, as a race, as a people, we really miss it. We really miss it. It's in our unconscious. There are over 3,000 books when I last look about Atlantis. Really? 3,000? 3,000. Is Atlantis then just a symbol in the unconscious, the collective unconscious of a alleged golden age that may be completely uh, myth and legend, or do we really have a collective memory of a time before our own? So I took then 10 different theories of what Atlantis might be, and one that I wrote extensively about was the one you just said, and I think the perfect base for this either species, ancient prehistoric species that survived and still emerges from time to time would be under the sea. Or then we have, of course, that old favorite, the hollow earth theory. Where, and again, the legends, the traditions of the wise ones that we treat, but then th- that we treated beneath the surface of the earth. But then, of course, you know, we know about the Darrow and the Tarot and that some of these guys aren't particularly nice. So that is a persistent theory. It goes back to in the cultures of many, many different th- people. And I'm just delighted to have Atlantis rising back on. This is one that, oh, I mean, so many people in the field who, whose name you would instantly recognize have written to me and say that's the book that they they hid whenever his sister Mary Margaret walked around. <laughs> they tucked it back under their algebra book or whatever. It's one that has caught the imagination. And, and Frank Joseph, whom I consider probably the prime, premier Atlantologist today, wrote the foreword to the book saying that that was the book, you know, that really got him started. And skeptics, Robert Bartholomew, who writes for Shermer's publication, uh, I have a skeptic writing a blurb right on the back cover saying that this was one of the first books he ever read and that this just filled him with a sense of wonder and exploration. And that's what I try to do with all my books is just to get people wondering and get people thinking. 
But, Brad, here's the thing about Atlantis, and I'm going to play the skeptic here for a moment, because there are a couple of really obvious questions that come to mind. And when you said something before, it really um, it struck home to me that people need this. They want this to be true. Is right. this a, some abstraction or, or modern form of what we would call Shangri-La? Is this the better place that we have to believe in in order to feel that we have the potential or perhaps in our own psyches is how we explain the potential that we have for destroying ourselves. We look at Atlantis as almost a cautionary tale. Look what they were. Look what they did. They existed. They destroyed themselves. This could happen to us. Where is the intersection between myth and reality on this one? Okay, I agree completely that Atlantis, as it is traditionally portrayed, is another version of Shangri-La. Mm -hmm. This is our ideal. This is what we can aspire to with all those little warnings that we must not do this. We must not allow science to control us. I take the tack, and I seldom use the word believe. I prefer I accept the evidence of. So I have accepted the evidence of a prehistoric global civilization. And I don't know what it was called. I don't know what it was called. But I have, over the years, of course, collected the fossilized footprints and the objects that have been blasted out of solid rock, the objects that have been found in coal mines to indicate a vast, vast prehistory for humankind. And that, of course, I extended. Now, an interesting thing, Atlantis Rising was an en enormously popular book. Twelve printings, you guys. I mean, and, and plus several foreign countries. Now, I then wrote Worlds Before Our Own a few years later, taking from rabbinical texts, so that the creationists could have their shot too. In rabbinical text that says, worlds upon worlds there were before Adam was. So, okay, we have our Adamic world that is only 6,000, 7,000 years old. But in those worlds, and I say there's been time for more than one evolution on this planet, and I have filled with pictures of footprints and fossilized footprints and an incredible, not a hominid, because a hominid wouldn't have been around. There wouldn't have been an ancestor of mammals around 150 million years ago, but I have sent this picture to the University of Utah of a human, a homo sapiens skeleton in strata indicative of 150 million years. Now, some bipedal creatures were walking around. Were they humanoid? Were they dinosauroid? There's time enough for the dinosaurs. The Nakasaurus had an opposable thumb, stood about five feet tall, and was basically humanoid in appearance. Stenachosaurus could have been the step to proceed into a reptilian genesis. So I take that evidence. Now, when I presented it in Worlds Before Our Own, I received the most scathing reviews I've ever received. I actually had reviews saying this book should be burned. This book should be banned. This book should, I mean, come on. This is in the 70s, and they're going to burn books? Now, I've always wondered why I could take some of these theories and present them in Atlantis Rising when I do a scholarly work with 38 pages of footnotes, all from scientific journals. 
38 pages, gentlemen. People wanted to burn the book. Then gradually it caught on, and then it said, Geiger challenges both religious and scientific establishments. I'm not challenging anyone. I'm just writing something I'm excited about. I was discussing this with Frank Joseph not too long ago. Why did people except in a popular way Atlantis rising but then when they write worlds before our own they want to they want to burn me at the stake or surely the book and I guess he hit it he said in Atlantis rising you talked about UFOs you talked about people under the sea you talked about the spirit world you talked about so many different things and the skeptics the academics could kind of laugh it off and say, oh, this is just an entertaining book. But in Worlds Before Our Own, where I write in a straight academic fashion with 38 pages of academic quotations and text, they couldn't argue. And But the only thing they could do then is react and say, don't read it, burn it, get it out of here, because these things challenge our basic beliefs. These things challenge our tenure. These things challenge the books that we've been writing and championing for decades. Well, but people are insecure enough, Brad. You know, they take all sorts of medications to deal with their insecurities. <laughs> and there are some things they want to assume are just so. And so when you, the problem is... I guess you're right. I mean, in any, of, this, right. in any of these topics, whether you're talking about UFOs, or the actual history of the planet, which, by the way... Gene and I have spoken about um, on the show and off off air, and I'm, I'm not sure how Gene ultimately stands on this point, but I, I'm at the point now in my life where the more I research this and read about it, the more I'm convinced that, and I've said on the show before, here I'll say it again to you, the actual history of this planet is largely unknown to us. Um, right. When you look at the right. fossil record, and, you, you know, one of the things that people have to realize is that when an animal gets fossilized, one of the things you can assume, assume not, it's not always true, but usually the case is that that animal was compressed into something very quickly. Animals right. that die out in the wild, basically uh, their, their bones get picked down to nothing and then the bones decay. And exactly. stuff vanishes. But when when creatures are caught in a lava flow or something along those lines, or you've got that tree right. sap coming down and, right. and encasing right. the insects. The avalanche. And, exactly. Then things get trapped. So the reality of the matter is that if we go by the fossil record, just the fossil record, it's probably safe to say at this point that a majority, defined as 51% or more, of species that lived on this planet have no fossil record. We don't know they were here. We exactly. don't know. They're finding a new dinosaur, it seems, every other month this past year. Yeah. It yeah. seems so, every other month they're finding a new dinosaur. Exactly. You're absolutely right. We don't. We have no idea. So when we discover these things, but this is what I don't get. <laughs> you know, why can't people get as excited about this as as I am. I, I, I don't see that this takes anything away from me or my world or my life. But I, as I, I said not long ago, I guess every, every one of the 164 books I've written are really trying to answer two questions. Who are we and what is our destiny? You know what problem might also I be that people, we really are. people are so busy chasing Britney Spears or the Tart of the Month Club there that they don't have time. We're thrilled that you're listening to this archived episode of the Paracast. If you want to hear the latest shows, 
click on over to www.theparacast.com. You can also join in on the most intelligent and dynamic discussions on our forums regarding all of the topics we discuss on the Paracast. So remember, www.theparacast.com. We'll see you there soon. You're listening to No Lies Radio, coming to you 24-7 from the San Francisco Bay Area, north of Berkeley. Your radio station for the truth, peace, justice, freedom, and more power to the people. On the Paracast this week, Bright Steiger joins us, author of 164 books, in the last three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> No? Four minutes? No. Taking a little little longer. Okay, well, a little bit longer than that. But true, people are so busy on all the current gossip that they can't look at gossip of five, ten thousand years ago or five million years ago. No, no, no. I don't know. I think it comes down to the fact that people consume the PAP because the PAP takes no effort to consume. If you If you start to read about these topics... It requires a tremendous amount of research. It requires a tremendous amount of thought and consideration. These oh, are not pre- right. These are not prepackaged ideas. You have to actually oh, think no, on your own. No, no, no. Well, hence the, the the triumph of the branding of religion. This is, I think, the reason that religion is so successful. It's that the answers are packaged and given to you. And okay, I don't have to think. This is the way the world is, and God said so. End of story. Boom. And you're done. And, and at that point, it's right, all laid out in right. front of you. The, 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 the road work's done. Everything, all of the hard lifting is accomplished. What occurred to me, guys, and you know, should have occurred to me long, long ago, I admit, but has really been brought home to me recently, is people really want black and white. They don't want gray. Right. right. Exactly. Well, and they have enough gray as it is. Yeah, yeah. So, again, as you say with religion, that's why I hear Orthodox members of of established churches being so upset with the New Age. The New Age religion, there is no New Age religion. There may be New Age thought, but New Age religion, if such a thing exists, is no threat to the established religions. Because the New Age religions say, well... Could be this, could be that. You create your own reality. Maybe this, maybe well, that. That doesn't satisfy the masses, does it? They no. want to hear you do this, you go to heaven. You do that, you go to hell. One, two, three, cut, black, white. That's what's black the and white. Want to it's hear. binary. Yeah. It's it's a binary. Black and white. Well, and you know what? Here we are. We're these creatures that are that possess bilateral symmetry. We have two ears. We have two eyes. Two hands. Two nostrils. You know, we have two brain lobes. Here it is. Everything is yes or no, black or white, you know, Republican, Democrat, left, right. Everything, all of our view of the world is boiled down to this or that. And it's not even that it's we don't, we don't want gray. We just, we want A or B. Uh, C is like, okay, it's too much. I can't think of C. Right, just right, give me right, A or right. B. But choose from two columns. Three columns? Uh-oh. It's that unfortunate reality, which, of course, what we know is that nothing is as it really appears. Nothing is as it really appears. And that's really what I'm saying in Worlds Before Our Own, what I'm saying in Atlantis Rising, what I'm saying in Shadow World. I suppose especially Shadow World mm-hmm. is, I, is what I'm saying. Nothing is may, maybe not as it appears. And we must be very cautious before we accept these things. As I said, and that, that's the first time I've ever said it in public, and some people are going to say, 
Brad has written 22 books on UFOs, but I think anyone who's been following my work certainly saw the change. Good old Stanton, as you said. We, uh, Sherry and I were asked some years ago to go to Vancouver, which, as you know, is Hollywood North, mm-hmm. and a new uh, television series was hoping to get started. And so they had the two of us, Stanton, oh, Bud, Bud Hopkins. Mm-hmm. To discuss UFOs. Now, Stanton right away, you know, delineated and said, now, uh, I deal with scientific, hard scientific evidence, and uh, Brad and Sherry, of course, they deal with the more amorphous or the spiritual or whatever, whatever. Well, you know, which is real? What is real? What is more real? And I respect Stanton very much. But, you know, he's been going on you know, the various theories. He's given his Watergate, UFO Watergate. Uh, he's been giving that lecture now for, what, 40 years? And he's very good, and he's very But again, can we not move off one dotted line and at least step over it and entertain and explore other expressions? One does not take away from the other. Gene, I'm sure you remember when uh, Tim had one of his many magazines, and I wrote, Tim wanted me to write my theory of UFOs, and I wrote 17 theories of UFOs, because that's how many... There are, to me, 17 theories of what UFOs can be. All right. Well, of the 17 theories, which ones do you find have the most traction? and Which ones do you find have the least traction? Number one, just as we said with Atlantis, there may really have been in Atlantis, just the way Plato writes about it, just the way some of the other ancient really existed, sunk under the ocean. Okay, we have to accept that as a possibility. But then if we look at it as a symbol of Shangri-La, as a symbol of hope, as a cautionary tale, it takes on whole other dimensions. And I think the UFO, when we see that it's been with us ever since, and I say not just when we stood upright as a species, I say before we stood upright as a species, I see it as a uh, correlative phenomenon or as guides, as both, if we want to get Jungian about it, as this collective unconsciousness, maybe that externalizes itself, maybe we externalize it as archetypes that lead us and guide us, or maybe we have a a species that coexists with us. Maybe they maybe they're the angels who created us. Maybe that's why we're here. Maybe this is a, a, a schoolhouse earth. So even when I'm trying to answer that question, you can see I blend so many things together because that's what I have to do because the UFO mystery is multi-layered. There are so many aspects of it. But I'm convinced, my wife Sherry is convinced, that it somehow affects every aspect of our lives. It reflects, it, it has affected our spirituality. It has affected the establishment of organized religions, whether they'll admit it or not. It affects how we think. 
It affects even our commercials on television. This is an all-pervasive phenomenon. That's one of my books, UFOs and the Transformation of Man. I think it really is involved in this transformation of who we are as a species, which again is why I want to find out in worlds before our own who we are, who we really are as a species before we continue this odyssey on this planet and go to the next step of who we're going to be. I'm just wondering here if we have another race coexisting with us, other races coexisting with us, do they want us to reach a certain point of development or will they say, no, you have to go where we want you to go? Well, that I think is a question that to answer it, some people are going to say, well, now you're entering into the realm of comic books or ancient sagas, which were the comic books of their days mass and popular culture, but I think because we see in our own species, I mean, we just saw this big study, you know, that even mice have this aggressive tendency. There seems to be within all creatures here on Earth that, that aggressiveness, that hostility, that animosity, which is what caused, according to traditions. Brad, you said something before that really uh, caught my attention. You said something about television and how television has been manipulated and we're responding to that manipulation. Could you elaborate on that, please? Are you referring to now UFOs or... Yeah, basically, you said something before about... um, There was something about how our thoughts are manipulated. You mentioned television. The reason I'm bringing this up is I've been thinking a lot about this topic, and every time we have you on the show, you say at least one thing where I go, oh, wait a minute, I've been thinking about that. That's interesting that Brad brings that up. Mm -hmm. Um, Just the the idea that maybe, maybe perhaps possibly mm, there is some sort of manipulation emotional, intellectual, I don't want to say spiritual because that's a dangerous word in this context, but there is some manipulation of people going on via television, maybe something that we're not entirely privy to. That's what you intimated at. Okay. I think the situation we have with television and have from the beginning, and, and there were many, many social commentators who tried to warn us about this, is the whole idea of it is, you know, it's really sucking our our brains out of our children to put it in in the bluntest way that I can mm-hmm. there are all these tests and the computer we have to throw in with that when it first came out television is going to stimulate young people to think I mean you put them in front of the TV they're not even a year old but they're absorbing all this they're absorbing all the thought and computers I mean my goodness uh, my two-year-old granddaughter can turn the computer on begin to work and this is going to really accentuate our creativity this is really going to accentuate our creativity to think wrong because all the tests that have and i've begun to suspect this it, it is decreasing creativity it is decreasing our ability to think we are now we have to see everything in quick sound bites mm-hmm. everything has to be mttv it has to be quick it has to be wham it has to be and our ability our ability to focus and to concentrate on a stream of thought has diminished now this is why and i say this with total sincerity i will always respond to you guys and your program and i'll always find time to be on it because we get to talk we get to think 
Now, I have no optimism, and I'm sorry, I'm sorry, that we're going to have a huge mass audience listening to us. I know that only, and I'm not trying to sound like I'm starting a cult here, we have only a special few individuals who are able to follow people talking without their mind straying, without their mind wandering. We are so used to sound bites and things happening quickly that our ability, I mean, the, the oral tradition that has sustained our culture for centuries would not be able to survive today. Everyone says, well, get to the point, get to the point, get to the point. Radio, I think then, it was a superb method of communication, the theater of the mind, where we can actually create our own images. Most of the people who hear us don't know what any of the three of us look like. They can make us look however however they want, and it doesn't matter because it's what we're saying that matters. On television, you have to look a certain way, you have to dress a certain way, and you have to say it quickly, and you have to say it in a condensed manner. One could not make point after point the way we're doing and striving to do on this program. Well, concision is the word. You have to be concise. Things have to fit between commercial A and commercial B, and you assume that people are web surfing or channel surfing, I guess is the appropriate term there, and you have to keep them from choosing another channel. You have to, and, and certainly anybody who studies media knows that when you watch TV and the commercials come on, they're significantly louder than the shows you're watching. And part of that... Even though they always deny it. They always deny it. No, 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 we don't turn that up. Of well, course hey, not, no, sir. Uh, right. Another thing which I, I think we're suggesting in this, and I have come to suspect it. Now, I know they again say subliminal messages are not. That's against the law, FCC, everyone. But again, I truly wonder, you know, and how do we really know the subliminal images that can be projected at certain times. Now, I also, and again, God bless them, but there is just a total mass deluge of ghost-busting shows and ghost-hunting shows. Now, again, with the exception of very few, I think there are, and people are going to be upset, and I don't mean it, you're all good guys, but I think you're being used. I think you're being used by the powers that be to present the whole idea of parapsychology in a way that serious-minded people won't be able to take seriously, that they laugh at, that they'll say, oh my gosh, did you see that person jump or did you see that person that's just a scratch electronic voice phenomena come on that's this I mean how are they going to hear that how are they going to hear Lincoln's Gettysburg address from but look at those fools I, I think the mass that we have on History Channel and Discovery Channel and National Geographic and Vacation Channel and Licorice Gumdrop Channel whatever I think they are having a negative and reverse effect on the field they are overloading people with so much of what is just plain silly well everything turns standard that's my rant yeah no no it's not a rant Brad that's relevant everything in our society becomes entertainment it has to be News becomes entertainment. And I've said it on the show before. I'll say it again because I can't mention this movie's name enough. The Movie Network predicted every last bit of this, all of it. If you go and look at the 1976 film Network, it accurately laid out 
the vision of what became Fox News. It did. Brilliant film. It absolutely. It's a brilliant film. So here's the thing. We have these shows on cable, and one of the things that is happening on the Paracast forums is that people have been talking about shows like Paranormal State, which has a very, very heavy Christian set of overtones to it. It's just, you know, and everything is a demon. Yeah, it, it's it's not good. Everything is a demon, and you know they bring Lorraine Warren in, and she's saying, "Oh, honey, you have an evil demon here." Everything's a demon. They're throwing holy water all over the place, and they're drawing crosses all over the place. And I'm not surprised at this. We look at what's happening in our society today. See, there's uh, black and white again, isn't it? Well, yeah, it's a demon or it's an angel. Hey, before we decide whether it's a demon or an angel, actually, it's a commercial. On the Paracast, we have Brad Steiger, author of over 160 books. Go to bradandsherry.com to learn more about the things he does. It's linked at our site, theparacast.com. And we're talking about how this country is going to hell in a breadbasket. How? No, it's a slow process. And when let's get back to TV for a minute here, because ultimately it's about creating cooperation and voluntary cooperation. It's about conditioning and people can say well that's a conspiracy theory no that's an institutional analysis this is what's going on mm-hmm. you look at the fact that today in order to play in the political game in this country you have to cough up 200 million dollars 150 million dollars 300 million dollars so where does all that money go we're buying tv spots that's where the money goes and money goes and if you can't come up with that cash you're not even Forget in the it. running. I don't know that that's what the founding fathers of this country had in mind. I certainly hope not. Um, uh, but that's no. where we are today. And and the thing is that when we see paranormal topics covered on TV, they're like you see the Larry King show. He's got a UFO thing. They've got to show the obligatory one-armed Swiss farmer footage from you know that we all know is just ridiculous. They've got to show the clips from Mars attacks and that day the earth stood still and you know they've, they've got to show the stuff because it's like okay let's send the not so subliminal message that this is science fiction emphasis on fiction right, right. Uh, and right. it's the constant drumbeat and so you've got serious people like james fox and stan freeman and larry king james fox who's out of the blue documentary is absolutely phenomenal for my money best documentary ever done about the subject of ufos and he's got to contest the perception on the part of the public that this is basically science fiction even though you've got pilots saying i saw a thing a mile wide mm-hmm. well mm-hmm. uh it's a, it's a, okay that's a hallucination all right um well, we and saw hallucination have- you can touch yeah. Oh, yeah. The guy from the whole thing from um, the Bentwater case. You've got the guy who was on the ground, touching the craft, making drawings of the symbols that were on the craft on his notepad. He's walking around the thing for half an hour. Yeah. He was seeing a lighthouse beacon. It's like, oh, come on. Right. Just right. This is like right. ridiculous. But so, OK, Brad. So now, of course, the paranoid members of our audience say, OK, they, they have a question. And the question is. So what's the deal with that? Why is there this huge level of denial on the part of official agencies about this? What's your theory? There's lots of theories. What's your theory? Oh, there's so many theories. As I say, I 
really beginning seriously, not just peripherally interested, but beginning seriously in 1966. And the number of people to whom I've spoken who are scientists and who work at NASA and who are in the Pentagon and who are in the Secret Service and the CIA and so forth, who have spoken to me, you know, off off the cuff and not for print, but uh, can use their what they say, but not their names. I see here again. Uh, we don't want to get into conspiracies on this particular program. Why I not? Think. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> I I think there has to be. What do you want to call it? The New World Order, the Illuminati, or, you know, the the uh, Chipmunk Society or whatever. There's another aspect of government, not not our elected officials, but, but there is a secret arm or there is an arm controlling things. There is someone controlling it. We know it's not the Illuminati, not the Bavarian Illuminati at any rate. We know that was dispersed centuries ago. We know it's not the poor Masons. I mean, come on, the average age is 65, you know, unless all these senior citizens are going to rise up some night and, and conquer us. I That's mean, the senior citizen you know, conspiracy, of course. Yes, yes. Uh, but we have people, societies, secret, truly secret, using these symbols, using this disinformation, flooding us, clouding us. And the basic thing is to make it all appear science fiction or that only silly, misguided people understand these things. Now, by the same token, let's go back now to Operation Paperclip, which we have to, I think, look at some of the early UFO sightings. Operation Paperclip, just very quickly, for those who do not know, is immediately, before the smoke had even cleared in World War II, we were shipping Nazi scientists and their families to become involved in our space program. Okay, some of the sightings that were seen in 46, 47, I think we have to, even the dyed in the wool UFO buff has to admit that some of those were experimental craft of our own, given an impetus by the German scientists who were brought over here. The ones the Soviets didn't get, we got. They were here. So I, I think we have to concede that. By the same token, I think we have to see that there was another group of entities, and maybe they've been here forever. Maybe they did come from the hollow earth. Maybe they did come from under the ocean. Because I, in Atlantis Rising, just flipping through it, some of the cases I had from before Roswell, before Roswell, five years, six years before Roswell, were pilots encountering these objects, encountering the objects with cupolos, seeing them dive, not crash, but dive into the ocean. The whole Foo Fighters situation. My cousin is in aviation history books as one of the first men to have shot down a Nazi jet airplane. And he cited the Foo Fighters, and he thought, well, they've come up with another dang secret weapon. Let me try to shoot that down, too. I shot down down the jet they brought over. He was stationed in England. He had a P-51, and he was an ace. Now, again, why you must always talk to our elders before they go is we were, Sherry and I were just going to, when he showed me aviation history, he's mentioned, he's in there, shot down the first uh, German jet airplane. We thought we got to get Bob's story done.
down. We've got to get this down. We've got to record all of it. I've known it since I was a kid, of course. I want to get every detail that week he had a stroke. That's why you've got to are this greatest generation. You, if, I mean, if you've got a father, you've got an uncle, whomever, you've got to get this down. You've got to get it recorded because from the time he had his stroke, this wonderful, wonderful, positive guy who had had all these adventures in World War II, every time I came to see him, he thought I was a member of his squadron. I mean, he could not relate. His mind was lost. So, yes, so I've been getting these reports. I think there is. There has to be. I'm saying that out of frustration because you asked me about secret government society. To me, it was always wink, wink, nudge, nudge. As I started out, a true believer, nuts and bolts, the government's trying to cover it up. The more pilots I got to know, the more government officials I got to know, I find they're just as confused as anyone. People asked me early on when I'd go on talk shows in 68, 69, they'd say, well, what does the Air Force think? Is this the Air Force's one or two guys? You know, we're talking about a vast number of people who have had experiences. We know the phenomenon is real. What is it? That, you know, we're still trying to find out. And as we said earlier, when you said photo analysis, mm -hmm. okay, we can see, we can take a picture, we can analyze it, we can see if it's U.S. Air Force, if it's Russian, if it's British, but we can't tell what the pilot believes and what his political persuasion is. Well, that's what we can't tell, and you guys are absolutely right to bring it up. When we see an unidentified fine object, we can't say that it came from Alpha Centauri. Here's where it gets dark, though, Brad, and, and this is something we've been talking about more on the show lately. I'm going to throw this out to you. you. You look at stuff like, for example, the scale of some of these crafts that are reported. The night of the Phoenix Lights, before the what I suspect were flares later in the night that I think were done as a distractionary element later in the evening. Earlier in the evening, there were the large number of reports, we've spoken to some of those direct witnesses, of this mile-long thing. Now, mm -hmm. stop and you mm -hmm. think about that, right? Let's think about what we have that that's scaled up like that. You know, you think about ships. Okay, what, what's the longest ship we've made? Well, that would be an aircraft carrier. That's the biggest thing we have. And what's its function? And it's really, really big. And it's really big. An aircraft carrier is a huge thing. It's the biggest, one of the biggest vessels you'll ever see of any kind made by us. It's a floating Absolutely. city. Absolutely. And, it's, and, and people, I think, don't, you know, they, they maybe when they think about aircraft carriers, if they're not in the Air Force or the military or the Navy, they'll think about you know, things from movies back in the 60s. These ships now, they are, as you just said, they're complete cities on the water. But what's mm -hmm. their primary function? Well, the primary function is to take aircraft to remote places. That's what they do. That's why it's called an aircraft carrier. So now you look at these huge ships that, look, I don't know what they are. But what do I know? They're not ours. They're clearly not. We have nothing 5,000 feet long in the sky. We have nothing 5,000 feet long in the water. We've got nothing of that size. Now you've got something that size in the air. And you know, Brad, what, what hits me, it's just it makes me a little cold inside as I think, what is that? What function could that have? And I come up with two things. I come up with the equivalent of an aircraft carrier. Mm -hmm. That's one thing, and I don't like where that takes me. And then I come up with a supply ship. Mm -hmm. and I'm not sure I like where that takes me either. So what do you mm -hmm. think about these huge craft? What's your take on that? Precisely what you have just spoken, my friend. I hear these reports. I mean, I get 300 emails 
every day, and you guys probably do too. And these are all from, I mean, sincere, honest. They have nothing. They, they they don't want me to write a book about them. They don't want to be in a book. They 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 just they believe in what I'm doing, just as these people believe in what you're doing, and so they send their accounts. And when I get this from a hunter, from a truck driver, from a pilot, describing something of that size. Yeah. I get the same cold feeling you do. And I've got the same two <laughs> theories that you do. You know, it's either aircraft carrier or supply. And, okay, they're up there. What are they doing? You know, and, and we have that uneasy feeling. Now, we just said before that we think the, quote, powers that be, unquote, are trying to make a lot of us think of all oh, this is just science fiction. Mm -hmm. However, those of us who watch science fiction, read science fiction, and sometimes, you know, maybe in our early career wrote science fiction, we can't help thinking of classic stories like How to Serve Man. We can't help thinking like of V, where one day they come down and everyone's skeptic gets his wish, his her wish of the White House lawn, and then how do we react? Why are they really here? I'm convinced they've been observing us. They've been in an interacting with us for at least 500 million years because of the artifacts that have been discovered, objects that have been discovered, mining that has been done, coal mining that has been done, copper mining that has been done. We have found mines so old that the coal has been rotting. I mean, now that's old. We've sunk down shafts 8,250 feet, and the miners have broken through to other shafts that were there before them. They're coming down with the greatest of modern equipment, and here's some of us there before them. Oh, well, come on, are they, were they Native American tribal people? They didn't use coal, they didn't use copper. Who was here mining this planet, mining this earth? millions of years ago. That's a question that we'll leave for think, part two. I don't think they've left. Huh. That's a question Pardon? we should leave for part two of the show because okay. we do our hourly break and everybody can take a breather for a couple of minutes and then we'll go to part two. Well, I'm here to discuss my alternate theory. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the podcast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Here we are back with Brad Steiger, a good friend of our shows. And I thank the universe for that. You've got Brad, Gene, and myself having a What's about to, I think, become an even stranger discussion about a lot of different topics. What we're looking for here, gentlemen, is the unified field theory of all things paranormal. And I won't settle for less at this point. I think that's what we need to go for. And Brad, you're the guy to take us there. So let's get something out on the table here. Amen, brother. Yes. Gene and I, as I intimated before, we've been talking a lot about this notion of the interconnectedness between different areas of the paranormal and in the first hour, we started going down the road of maybe we're dealing with something that's been here for a long time. Mm -hmm. And we started talking about technology, and then now we have modern technological crews breaking down into tunnels deep in the ground. Now, 
part of the issue with this discussion is that sometimes people want something more tangible than these stories. They say, okay, we're talking about technologies that existed before humans were on the earth. Where's the proof? So I'll just throw this out. Where can somebody go see or what actual tangible evidence do we have, Brad, of a technological reality before there was supposed to be one? Well, here again, I fit right into that, uh, what we were decrying, that consumerism, but they can buy worlds before our own and look at the pictures. That's a good start. These are uh, actual photographs that people have discovered, the technological and the mechanical and the beautiful work that uh, has been blasted out of solid rock. And that would make, you know, the millions, millions of years old. These are things that... Well, I have had, I am afraid, some good uh, archaeologist friends. If, if, if I hadn't gone the path I did, uh, archaeology has been my passion since I was a kid, history and archaeology, and I, I'm sure I would have been an archaeologist, anthropologist, or whatever. And I do have my degree in sociology, but uh, that's as close as it got. And psychology. I was one of those that my dad said, you know, you have about 50 more hours than you need to graduate. Aren't you going to graduate and do something? <laughs> I loved, I loved scholarship and I loved working. And it was very interesting because, you know, I grew up an evangelical Christian, and I went to an evangelical Christian college where there was no mistaking. I mean, the world began 6,000 years ago. And, uh, well, what about, what about, uh, what about Neanderthal? I mean, what about the, no, no, those, those were humans who had horrible bone diseases. That's as much as we could get out of the professors. Hmm. But I found this forbidden area of the library. And, uh, and, uh, also my grandmother was a town librarian, the little town I grew up. And I am the only male in the entire line. Everyone else had girls. So I was always kind of her favorite. And she would order any book I wanted, and uh, that really got me started. She would order. She'd have, she'd have warning because I'd want these books on psychical research, and she'd say, now the only supernatural that you ever need to know about is why God sent his son to save us from sins. But if you insist, I'll order this book and that book and that book for you. So, yes, this is a passion of mine. I have found these things. Archaeologists' friends have told me about digs and discoveries they have made, and they said they'll never be able to write about them. They'll never be able to disclose them if they want to keep that magic word tenure, if they want to keep respectability. And there's nothing nothing as they've all warned me that will destroy any of them academically faster than mentioning prehistory such things as atlantis and the world before our own so i thought darn it i didn't get my degree in that area so i can't lose my tenure in that area so i'm going to write worlds before our own and put all these stories in that they've told me and put in the photographs that people have sent me and provided me. Some of this stuff is compelling, and like anything else, some of it isn't. So recently I had read online the um, thing that you wrote, A Prehistoric Nuclear War, Reflections mm -hmm. on Worlds for Our Own. And I, I called Gene up and I said, we got to get Brad back on because this is a topic I've been personally thinking a lot about lately. 
and we need to have a discussion. So I read your piece, and I started looking up some of these things you bring up, because I, we've had another guest on the show, Klaus Adona, who, Gene, we've got to get back on soon, because i got a, a real hurt to talk to Klaus again. I've written to him. I'm waiting for him to return from one of his worldwide expeditions, and hopefully in the near future. Brad, Klaus is a, is a fellow who is a researcher who's put together an amazing collection of these anomalous objects, uh, a number of them which we had all read about back in the Von Donneken peak days. There are other objects that there are issues with. Now, in this piece that you've written, there was one thing that I found particularly interesting. This question of this prehistoric shoe print from a, uh, from a Nevada fossil dig. I guess mm-hmm. it was uh, John T. Reed had found this what he thought was basically a prehistoric shoe print in what was supposed to be, what, a couple of hundred million years old? Some rock? I think it was in some limestone. So I found that to be really fascinating. I went on the web. God bless the web. We love the web. I went and did some searching for this, and I found that, indeed, there are only some old photographs of this, that we don't have the physical artifact. And I've got to be honest with you, I looked at this photograph, and what occurred to me, and I guess part of the problem is that when you're dealing with an old photograph and not the actual artifacts, I'm going to ask you about the actual artifact, but you look at the photograph, and and I looked at it, and I thought, this looks like some natural striations in the rock. It doesn't look to me like anything unusual. Then I start doing some other research. Now, this particular piece of evidence is very interesting because this is one of the things that the people who are creationists have grabbed onto. They did put a different time scale on it, of course. Right, exactly. So they impose their own time scale to sort of back up their theory. There's talk about this thing having been examined, uh, that this, uh, this fellow Reed brought this thing to New York City to have it examined by uh, some reputable people, but... This goes back to, well, gee, the earlier part of the 19th century. There, there are some stories that date back to 19, uh, 1922. So when, when you have something like this, part of the problem is, okay, where's the physical artifact? So I ask you, Brad, do we know where this physical artifact is today? We, we know where many of them are. Uh, really? We know uh, Dr. Stanley Ryan, University of Oklahoma, uh, Dr. Wilbur Greeley Burroughs. We, we have many of these things that have been found since. Now, the one you're referring to, if I remember correctly, the reason that was notable is that it had actual thread imprints indicating that the the sandal had been sewn. Now, there are some imprints, I agree with you, that that do look like uh, natural striations, and then you kind of, you know, like it's looking at clouds and so forth and and seeing that, well, that could have been a footprint. The ones that I find significant are the ones that have other evidence, you know, like thread showing the work of fine workmanship in the sandal, the bare feet, which uh, you definitely see toes, you definitely see the imprint of heel and toe and so forth. And, and these are showing up all over the place, but primarily in the American Southwest. And mm-hmm. they were made apparently and quite obviously when this was a sea and when we have uh, a muddy or sandy beach and people are walking around barefooted. And um, I have quite a number of those and I have photographs of them and people have them, you know, they, they've collected them. They, they found them when they were digging for a supermarket in Oklahoma City. They found them when they're 
Dr. Greeley Burroughs found them with the date back to the age of amphibians. And then, of course, people said, well, that's probably what they were, some kind of alligator-like creature, some kind of reptilian or amphibian. But there were no sliding belly or tail marks. So, again, it appears that we have bipedal creatures, bipedal entities, bipedal beings walking around when there shouldn't even have been the earliest ancestor of hominids or mammals. Okay, let's dovetail on that with the idea of ancient technology. Now, based on our own use of things like plastics, we know that when you stick a piece of lucite in the ground, chances are you're going to come back thousands of years later, and you're probably going to find that lucite in just about the same condition as when you buried it. Mm -hmm. Um, If we talk about radioactive materials, we know that these things can have a half-life of 8,000 years, 9,000 years, 12,000 years. Unfortunately. Yeah. So... Let's take the case of ancient technological civilization. The skeptical mind asks, if you have an ancient technological civilization, you would expect to find remnants of machines, for example. Now, you know, because we can talk about the Sphinx in Egypt, we can talk about the real dating of that, and I think that's a really relevant and fascinating topic, but at the same time, we would expect to find some sort of remnants of complex machines, now, there have been some cases where there was part of a, a uh, an astronomical computer. I'm forgetting the name of that object, but it was in the last couple of years it was discovered that indeed it was part of a celestial computer that was, I forget, it was like maybe 800 years old or so. Yeah, that, that went back to the, the Greeks, the computer, the Greek computer that they dug up off the island of Antikythera on Easter Sunday in 1900. Right, okay. So that's one example of an old machine, but is there anything that to your mind would represent an interesting example of a machine from 10,000 years ago or 50,000 years ago? Have you seen anything along those lines? I I think what we have in this situation is maybe an alternative theory that we're dealing with extraterrestrials. One of the theories I have, just a theory now, Mm-hmm. in Atlantis rising is that Atlantis was never on Earth. Atlantis became a corruption of humans as they heard these ETs talk about the destruction of their own planet and how they, how they left that planet to come to Earth. Now, if we have an advanced civilization that had machines that wouldn't corrode, that wouldn't turn into rust, we should be able to find them if indeed they did crash or they weren't hidden. If we have an early terrestrial culture, then quite likely, just as we would bury something made of steel, and if it were several million years old, it would be nothing. It would be uh, indiscernible. It would be shards of of bits of rust. What I have found, though, and, and what I have found so convincing of an earlier terrestrial prehistoric civilization are objects such as pie, let's say pie plates, but plates and eating utensils and walls 
and this lovely vase that was blasted out of solid rock at uh, near Hill when they were building in Massachusetts that has been examined by Harvard and MIT and, and Museum of Natural Art, and no one can determine the period of time or culture or so forth. Well, if it's blasted out of solid rock, quite likely it came from a culture from a world before our own. We have, and you, you guys know about this, we found steel balls with strange markings on. We have found objects such as that scattered around. But in terms of, you know, a spaceship or a great flying machine, now if we, if we go and open our minds to such works as the Mahabharata and some of the holy works of India, we, we find that they were conducting this what we would probably say today, nuclear war with uh, flying machines that were actually controlled with the mind. And we know that we have such objects today that pilots are able to, that we're making that leap, they're able to control their flying craft by mind. But in terms of, okay, we have the batteries found in Baghdad. We have other what appear to be early electrical, but that, that's that's in the historical period. You're asking about the prehistory. Prehistory, yeah. So I'll tell you what, before we yeah, go to prehistory. We're thrilled that you're listening to this archived episode of the Paracast. If you want to hear the latest shows, click on over to www.theparacast.com. You can also join in on the most intelligent and dynamic discussions on our forums regarding all of the topics we discuss on the Paracast. So remember, www.theparacast.com. We'll see you there soon. You're listening to No Lies Radio, coming to you 24-7 from the San Francisco Bay Area, north of Berkeley. Your radio station for the truth, peace, justice, freedom, and more power to the people. We have Brad Steiger joining us on the PowerCast this week, this time spending the entire show with us. We're talking now about ancient mysteries. So I left the cliffhanger. Brad, you just mentioned something very interesting. These steel balls, these metallic balls that supposedly, what I've read about these things, they've fascinated me. But they were supposedly found in a South African mine in 1911. And that supposedly they came out of Precambrian rock. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, That's the 250 stuff, million years ago. Right. Long time ago, long before there should have been anything that supposedly these things had the markings of some kind of machining on them. They had a repeating pattern around them. That's right. That's right. Right. Then some of these spheres supposedly were hollowed out and had some sort of fibrous material in them. Mm-hmm. And that these there were two types of spheres. They looked different. So here's the question that so far no, nobody has been able to answer for me. Do we know where any of these things are today, those spheres? No, I, I don't know where they are. We would hope, we would hope, wouldn't we, that they were in some proper institutional receptacle museum being studied. But it's, it's as so many of these that I, I mentioned, as I say, 38 pages, all 
scientific journals from which I quote in Worlds Before Our Own, the skeletons that found eight feet tall, the skeletons found with double rows of teeth, again, definitely human or humanoid with uh, like equine faces, horse faces, but again, with large teeth or double rows of teeth or six fingers. It, it leads one to think that the entire North American continent was probably an experimental genetic laboratory because we have so many, and then we have entire graveyards filled with people two feet tall but yet perfectly formed. It's, it's, you know, those things were found, they were documented. Some are in museums, some are in curio shops because no one knows what to do with them. They've been found in Death Valley, they've been found in Pennsylvania, Kentucky, New England. It's fascinating when you put them all together, as I did in the book, and, and you, you see how many that the special done on Learning Channel a couple of years ago on giants, where there are giants in the earth. This was based on my chapter in Worlds Before Our Own, which again is, was reprinted earlier, that the director who came from Scotland read when he was a little boy. And it's fascinated him with all the evidence I have of giants and eventually became the special on the Learning Channel when he was a grown man and had some influence in the television world. We have all these scattered bits of evidence. Now, since the book came out, since that article you were referring to earlier was widely published, I have been getting emails from from Italy telling about this count who has still in his castle this giant eight feet tall that was found when they dug that. And that's been obviously in the family for generations. We hear from Native Americans who say that they have uh, found skeletal remains eight feet tall. These things pop up. Now, why... You say, where are they? That, that's yeah. a dang good question, because when I first wrote the book, I first wrote an article, Preferring. You remember good old Saga magazine and so forth. So I wrote some of these, and I mentioned the names, and I mentioned where people could see them. And then I began to get angry letters from people saying that after the article, after my initial publication appeared, their museum, their curio shop burned down. They had fires, and now they no longer have that. So darn it. Hmm. So now I'm very reluctant to mention you know exactly where some people are holding these. Most of them are today, I will only say, in private collections. Well, that's obviously very frustrating because... But obviously. Obviously, obviously. It's frustrating, and it harkens back to this idea that something or someone is trying to keep us from understanding what the hell is really going on. Now, I, I'm, yeah, I'm convinced well, of that. Well, when you say this, though, Brad, people immediately put on the glasses that tell them that now you're a conspiracy theorist. Exactly. You're nuts. You can't Paranoid. Be, you're paranoid. And that now all of a sudden, anything you have to say is questionable. So is that part of the mechanism that allows what is potentially going on to be going on? And do you think there's any way we can break out of the loop, or is this just an exercise in futility? I, and I know I speak for you too as well. We'll just keep on. 
We'll just keep on talking about it, telling people about it. I've always been a cockeyed optimist, but I, I'm the older I get, and I saw one reference to me saying, gee, he's really smart, but he's older than dirt. Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> They said that about McCain also. Yeah, McCain, I think it came after that, because I heard him say it. And then after my appearance on Coast to Coast the other night, you know, boy's really smart, but he's older than dirt. Uh, <laughs> as if that, you know, should somehow, you know, you reach a certain age. And I, anyway, anyway, I shouldn't even have brought it up. But let me give you an, another example, and I think you'll see where I'm going with this. Right. I found an account from 1900, the year 1900, and it told about a farmer in Texas, which at that time, obviously, he was using oxen or horses to plow his field. Mm -hmm. The little girl, his daughter, was following behind him and saw something shiny when the plow turned over the earth. And here was this very strange coin that no one could identify. Well, I took a chance because this is a small town in Texas. So I wrote to the family of da-da-da. And if you get this letter, do you have still in the family possession this coin, this mysterious coin? Would you take a picture of it and send it to me? These people were so trusting. They sent me the coin. They sent yeah. me the coin. I yep. mean, you know, that's that's good old Southern Texas hospitality. And they said, we don't think we have a camera good enough, so you take the picture and then you send it back. Okay, I have, I printed that coin in Mysteries of Time and Space. A couple writers were intrigued by it and said someone has to be able to identify it. It's appeared in numerous magazine articles. No one has identified it. And now here again, you could say, well, it's a society, a secret society. But it has a pharaoh with the head of a lion seated on a throne. On the backside is the sphinx with a face, not blown away, with a face and the pyramids. Now, is this an Egyptian coin or, well, okay, this leads into all the coins strange coins, mysterious coins that have been found in the United States. Are they just from some secret society? And that's why even though I show a picture of it, I'm not going to say who it is. Our society is that secret. Seems like someone sooner or later would say, well, you know, that's the royal order of something or other. And marking posts, uh, street signs <laughs> in another language that when people are digging for new buildings, shopping centers, malls, or whatever, they find these in, in, a, in a strange language that looks to me very much like, and I'm not an expert, I didn't go to Hebrew school, but it looks very much like ancient Hebrew to me. And it, it's something like that. It's like a Hebraic, Grecian kind of blend of like, maybe it's Phoenician. Maybe the Phoenicians did come in and establish a settlement here. But people are finding these, but they're people, people. Museums don't want them. That doesn't fit anything. So think of this. This had been in the family since the year 1900, just keeping it as a memento because they, they couldn't interest any scientists in it. And even though I tried and tried to show it and talked to many people and printed it, no scientist has asked, ah, oh, that's intriguing. I want to examine it. They don't want to deal with it. Well, Brad, I have to say again, this is something else I need to see as I still, because of my years of Hebrew school indoctrination, read and write perfect fluent Hebrew. <laughs> so 
It sounds like I've got to see this picture. This is fascinating. Okay, so a couple of questions. Did this coin show the effects of real aging? How old did this thing look? Well, it, it looked very old to me. Now, naturally, you know, I sent it back to them. I mm -hmm. sent it back to them. I took the photographs and so forth. The signs, well, what, one more, you know, pardon me. <laughs> the beautiful vases or vase, depending on your accent. That's well, I'll tell you, before we have vases and vases, let's okay. have this. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Joining us, Brad Seiger for the full two hours, and we're talking about ancient mysteries, modern mysteries, and things that go bump in the night. Okay, the vase, the vase, what do you mean? This was blasted out of solid rock when they were building a meeting house in Dorchester, Massachusetts. At the time, it was sent immediately, where else? To Harvard. They had it for many years, exploring it, trying to figure out what it was. They got tired of it. They sent it to MIT. They examined it. They sent it to a Museum Natural Arts and Sciences, who had the most up-to-date kind of laboratory. They finally just gave up. Now, I tried to track this down, and a wonderful gentleman had it again, sent me a full 8 by 10 Now, this will really sound embarrassing, I think, to any scientist. This man was the janitor. They gave up trying to examine this beautiful, beautiful. It's inlaid with silver. It's, uh, it looks like uh, some kind of floral design. I don't know if it was a vase, if it was an incense burner, candelabra. I don't know what it is, but it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. And since they couldn't explain it, it was sitting in the closet. And this guy said, if you guys don't want it, can I take it home? And I said, sure. So I tracked him down. He still had it. I mean, think of that. You you asked you asked earlier. Where are these? Here's your answer. There's yeah. your answer. Oh boy. So basically, it's uh, it's an Easter egg hunt. Yeah, yeah, it is an Easter egg hunt. People find them. <laughs> they <laughs> they show them because. Let's face it. I mean, we we were kind of a little harsh a while ago on the uh, the alertness of some of the American public, but that's not everyone. Of course, some people are very concerned. They're very active. They have active minds. They have a curiosity. They have the same kind of curiosities and wonderment that we do. So they that they are to bring these findings, these discoveries to someone who's supposed to say, wow, this is incredible. Thank you so much. This will add so much to our research. This mm -hmm. will fill in so many blank spots in our research. Instead, they're met with indifference or I don't, I don't want it. Take it home. Do with what you want. But you'd think somebody out there in one of these institutions would think, hey, maybe there's a possibility this is something genuine. Maybe before giving the item to that janitor, we should take a look 
or find the right people to look at this. I had an archaeologist friend who was a, he was really into what I was doing, and I showed him all of these things. And he said one time when we were sitting alone in my office, he said, you know, I could tell you so much more. I could tell you some of the things I've seen, some of the things we have found in digs that just absolutely there's no way it makes any type of historical scientific sense that these objects can be here, but they are here. But he said, I can't write a paper. I can't do anything about it. Now, he, he was a good friend. He supplied me with a lot of information. And I, he was a young man. He was a young man. And I don't even like to think these thoughts. I don't even like my mind to go there. But in my opinion, he was a young, vigorous man. And then the next thing I heard, he, he was dead. And uh, I couldn't get anyone to say, how could this young, vigorous, handsome young man who had an open mind, was it the open mind that hastened his demise? I don't even like to go there. I didn't like to think those thoughts. That sounds like, you know, some cheap horror film or whatever, but unfortunately we know these things do happen. Well, so where, how do you, well, I ask this of every guest, Brad, how do you filter out signal from the noise? How do you cut away the nonsense and, and try to de- sort of cut through what is not potentially legitimate and what might hold some answers? And what is the filter that you use because we've talked to people on the show that keep bringing up the term open mind, open mind, mm-hmm. to the point where you can't. It's, you know, where is the filtration? You have to have logic enter the game at some point. Well, you I mean, have to. You have to. Here, here again, I guess people think at this point, you know, that I, I must be very credulous. Well, if anything, you know, I, and I'll bet this is true of you, you become even more skeptical of some people's stories. You become even more skeptical of some people's evidence. Sure. I, I have people send me incredible finds, they say. Uh, this is an axe. This is uh, engraving. Now, I'll be honest. All I see is a large rock with... Uh, an uneven surface. But I write courteous letters back. I say this is uh, very interesting. Someone said he had like thousands of them, and he begged me to use my influence with the university of blah, 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 to send people he'd been at those scientists for decades. Well, first of all, I'm afraid I don't have that much influence with the scientists at blah, 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 (laughs) and I could see why they weren't interested, because they were just rocks with unusual chips and so forth. On the other hand, people send me photographs of things they have found in their fields or in their forest hikes or whatever that look extraordinary. And I try to direct them whenever I can to someone with credentials that I think will seriously examine them. But, I mean, let's let's face it, it, it's very difficult. Just like you heard on the UFO show the other night, well, science, uh, the UFO science just doesn't take it seriously. So, therefore, you can't examine it. And Maga said, you know, they... A true scientist will only laugh at these stories. Well, if we have that kind of closed and bigoted in mind, then it... uh, But I can't believe that. I know there has to be people who are questing, who are searching, who want to know, who share my passion for who are we? 
Who are we? Words. So we don't have what a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, a self-fulfilling prophecy. The scientists will say, well, there can't be anything to it, so we won't investigate it. You know, I want to do, and I know we have about 25 minutes left, so we don't have a lot of time to get into the ancient mysteries, but I wanted to kind of bring things current because we started the show with a current case in Texas. And just not too many weeks ago, we had another one of those press conferences in Washington, D.C., asking for scientific investigation, maybe some government action. We have that kind of request through the years, and of course it all comes up to the category of disclosure. Now, if there is going to be a disclosure, what kind of disclosure can or should the government be able to do? Uh, again, I, I don't mean to disappoint, but I, I, I don't think the government, the government knows any more than, I don't think they know as much as we know. I, I, don't, I don't think there's been any organized research. I don't think there's been any division, any agency. I, I have friends who can say, well, of course, they're not going to talk, but these are friends, friends, who are very highly positioned or have been in, in the government and in the Pentagon and in the armed services, and they, they swear on everything that, you know, they're, they're, they have no information. There's no closet. There's no hidden agency. Now, if this research is being done, it's going to have to, again, the impetus is going to have to come from civilian research groups, and we're going to have to uh, present information in a way that eventually will just overload the scientists' objections, and they they take a serious look. But there are serious scientists, and there are people who are examining it in the various, I'm convinced, in the various, now you begin to say, well, I'm being deceived, I'm being deluded, they're lying to me. If they are, then, uh, I mean, I have to say, I, I, I don't have any built-in lie detector. I don't have any great psychic powers that can look into people's thoughts and minds and hearts. But, but I, I have felt, as I said, I, I, people are going to be disappointed to hear me say that. But the big disappointment of my life is when it seemed to me that we weren't dealing with nuts and bolts and visitors from outer space. We were dealing with a phenomenon, with a, a mystery that had been with us ever since before we became human. Whether it's another, uh, I mean, whether it is another species that coexists on another dimension with us, somehow interacting on this planet. If they are companion species, if they are a species guiding us, if they're angels, if they're benevolent ETs that somehow stay beneath our ocean, stay in our, beneath our earth. I feel it's that type of mechanism, but I, and, and that doesn't discount for one moment extraterrestrial life, the possibility that there are numerous planets inhabited. I just think the majority of reports sightings we get are part of that great mystery that that has to do more with our spiritual metaphysical psychic growth than it does in invasion from outer space well certainly you can't convince the government to come out and say that hey ladies and gentlemen we have to admit that everyone is right there's this great mystery going on that involves the entire paranormal ufos ghosts i mean people would think they were nuts that's right that's right so they will not say anything again the whole the whole mystery of abductions if abductions truly exist what is the purpose? I, I know uh, 
Tim Beckley and I have talked, you know, do you really have to abduct 20 million people? You know, is your science that poor? Well, maybe they're doing more. If, if, if abduction exists, maybe they're looking for the cure for cancer. Maybe they're examining. I mean, if you have a very primitive culture and let's say the Red Cross comes flying in because they know they're about to be wiped out, this whole village is going to be wiped out by a typhus epidemic. They come in, they, and they inoculate people. And then they fly off again, and then they begin to speak, oh, shaman, who came? Well, they were the gods from the skies. They had red crosses on them. Uh, oh, Oog died, and but uh, everyone else seemed to survive. What did they do to Og? Well, I don't know. Well, he just didn't react to the typhus serum. So, I mean, e even that, do we really know the reason? If, if abductions even exist, or are they out-of-body experiences? Are they internal? Internalized fantasies? Do they project some yearning on the part of the abductee? All these things are, I think, so multi-layered. You're not going to get the government to stand up at a press conference and recognize Brad Steiger's 17 theories of UFOs. They're just going to say, number one, they don't seem to be harming us. Number two, we don't see any clear physical evidence. Number three, go home and take up another hobby. You know, I was just wondering before we get to number Number four, <laughs> and that is, you know, okay, we're looking at that now, abductions, and I wonder if a small part of them are just government experiments. And I raise this issue about Barney and Betty Hill. Of course, I don't know about you, but certainly Stanton Friedman doesn't want to hear this. Certainly Betty Hill's niece no, no, doesn't want to no. hear this. The possibility, the reason I said that is because, number one, they did things that made you think they wanted her to know something like the star map of Zeta Reticuli. Of course, of that must be evidence that they come from Zeta Reticuli. Also, the fact that they lived near a military base, had many friends who were in the military, and therefore were an ideal couple for an experiment. What do you think? Well, there is one X-Files, I hope you've seen it, that postulated that so brilliantly I've seen it three times. It's, it's exactly that, where it is set up, the whole abduction thing, by the government. Well, then, because it's the X-File, it turns out, you know, that the actual ETs also enter into it. But they had the men in black. Did you see this one? Jesse Ventura plays one of the men in black. If you haven't seen that episode, it's just, I remember uh, people in research were just saying, you know, there has never been a greater postulation of what could be going on if the military is responsible for some of the abductions. As we said before, Operation Paperclip was probably responsible for some of the early UFO sightings. I think we have to look at ULTRA. I think we have to look at some of the, oh my gosh, you know, in, in our Conspiracies and Secret Societies book, MK Ultra wasn't alone. That spawned, you know, like 20 different secret groups using LSD and using various hallucinogenics and kidnapping people and doing terrible experiments with putting <laughs> hallucinogenic in the New York tunnel. You know, I mean, all of these things have been done by our government and only recently come out. So, yes, I mean, I think we absolutely have to say some of those could have been militarily sponsored. You're a little arrogant with Jesus and you're the David Bailey. You never know what's going to happen next.
We have just a few more minutes, another 15, 18 minutes, with Brad Steiger, author of 164 books. That's incredible. Some of his best books are being reprinted, such as Atlantis Rising. David? Brad, you know, when you, you talk about the military, I think a lot of people would understand that really what we have to do is delineate between the military at the level that the public interacts with them, as it were, and then basically another level right. where we don't really know anything about them or what they do. Because Same way as the government. When we exactly. say government, we mean that. We have to delineate between what's what's on the surface and what's underneath. In the case of disclosure of UFO material, it's pretty clear that one could make a pretty good argument for the notion that the military does know some stuff but can't reveal it because the last thing they want to do is come out publicly and state, we have some information, but that information basically would indicate that we do not have control of our skies. We do not have control of our oceans. Therefore, we don't have control of our planet. Thank you. Have a nice day. They, they just can't do that. That would create a very, very uncomfortable situation. But what do you think about the idea that maybe, just maybe, these government operatives are not acting in a, in a way that's completely willful? Maybe what's really happening is a degree of some sort of subliminal or maybe not so subliminal control to the extent where you've got people doing things and saying things where they think they're acting of free will, and perhaps they're not. And and again, this takes us in a very deep, dark, mm-hmm. sort of paranoid tunnel, but something that's been occurring to me recently, and I've said this on the show as well, you look at the madness of what's going on on the planet with our supposed leaders just doing the most insane things. I really, truly, if one looks at some of this stuff objectively, you think, okay, either these people are abjectly evil, or they're crazy. And how is this in any way rational behavior? And then stop and think, well, maybe it's not rational behavior. Maybe what they're doing is playing out a game that they don't even realize. Uh, is this a topic that's one of those things that you can't talk about because it just makes people so uncomfortable that they want to slip back into their little cocoon of denial and say, no, no, nothing can be that weird. No, no, we have control of our planet. No, no we have a handle on the situation. Well, conspiracists, as you well know, I talk about that all the time. Mm-hmm. And whether it's the New World Order, the Illuminati, or whatever they, the conspiracist, whatever is his favorite boogeyman. And, and certainly, I think it is a very scary paranoid. But like you say, it's not paranoia if they're really doing it. And there is so much that, as I said, when we did conspiracies and secret societies, so many of these things, as I said, to me, I've always, I've always collected conspiracy, secret society material. I started when I was 11 years old when I read about the plot to kill Lincoln wasn't, you know, it was more than John Wilkes Booth. So when I was 11, I read that. I've been collecting articles ever since like that. I find it fascinating. But I wasn't really a conspiracy buff. As I said, a lot of this was wink, wink, nudge, nudge for me. But when you really get into it and you really begin to study it, you think, you know, it just feels like there has to be something like you've just described, that even even military who, who feel they're on one particular mission may have an entirely objective which is removed from them. We, we have the same thing, I think, going on with global warming right now. Mm-hmm. It is being used as a political device. It's being used as a political wedge. Now, I did a book way back again in the 70s called The Roadmap of Time. 
which was based on the research of some scientists who were way ahead of their times in terms of cycles and so forth. So we do know that, okay, humans are to some degree influencing global warming, but this is a normal cycle. This is a cycle that's going on. I mean, the, we are going to change. There's nothing we can do, but as I argued in the book, we can prepare for it. But now suddenly people have started preparing and what may be too late. So again, people, you said it so well. We feel with our super science, our indoor flush toilets, and our Internet that we are as far as we can go. We've reached the apex. We control things. We find out every time there's a hurricane, a tornado, a blizzard, yeah. that we don't control everything. Uh, we, we control like very little. Very little. Very little. And But as you said so well, we have this pattern of belief that we control everything, and we can control everything, and our science can control everything. And you're probably absolutely right. People would become so disillusioned. People would become so depressed. People would go into despair if they found out truly how little control we do have of the affairs that surround us and involve us every day of our lives. Well, but wouldn't they potentially get some comfort knowing that, hey, maybe there's a possibility that we are the genetic hope of a civilization that perhaps has gone through a tough deal on their planet and is now combining themselves with us. Well, and I get hope from that. I, I get I, hope from that. And, and well, that's, that's been one of the prima mobilium of my entire career. But I, I, I'm just having a hard time getting other people to even think about it. So perhaps it's a thing where our egos are so vastly overinflated that, well, what happens if we find out, oh, yeah, okay, human beings. Uh, let's see. Yeah, you were experiment number 742 that produced some really good base genetics for seeding on a planet. Actually, it's on the other side of the galaxy, and you'll never see it. But, uh, yeah, you know, if you guys work yourselves into oblivion, uh, we'll go and restart you somewhere else. But wait a minute, how can you restart us? Well, we started you here, right. so uh, we can take we can take you somewhere else. I mean, ultimately, one of the things that is a, is the biggest question mark in in the serious study I think of ufology is this insane differentiation of different types of beings and crafts seen. The morphology of UFOs alone would indicate either a you know they're, that these are internal projections of some sort and they're tailored to the individual viewer or that's my vote or the earth is a really interesting place that has an incredible diversity of life and in fact we're the genetic seed bank for this part of the galaxy and everybody's dropping by to pick some stuff up to take with them because gee um, there's something about the adaptability of life on this planet that maybe is of specific interest maybe is slightly unusual and Slightly unusual and therefore maybe. to be there. Yeah, well, I said uh, on a program not too long ago, and this isn't original with me, and you will know the source of it, Charles Fort. But I was saying, uh, yes, yes, you know, maybe, and this is a thought we have to consider when we're talking about 
just exactly, you said it all, uh, you know, an experiment, that we are an experiment. We are, as you said, we could be picked up and we could be started again. So I was going into that particular vein of thought, and then I said, you know, for some people it's very uncomfortable to think that we may be property. And someone reacted to that in an email, so said that I had destroyed you know, this entire life with that thought. So as we are building there it is, to it, right? yeah. yeah, it's the ego of the human species at this time, and that becomes such an offensive thought to so many people that we are not in control, that we may be being manipulated, we may be being guided. Now, I would like to put a positive thought. I would react, as you said, if someone said you were planted here and your genetic would go on to, I'd say, oh, wow, you know, thank you, thank you. That's the best news I've had. You know, there is hope for our species. And, oh, if I can have any partner, other people think, oh, my God, that's not what I want. You know, I thought I thought we were kind of running things down here. And to find out that we may not it is just a concept that some people just cannot handle. Probably the majority of people, you know, 51 percent look at that and just say, no, I want to be a special snowflake. I <laughs> want to right. be the chosen of the God that I worship. Uh, I want to be the ultimate culmination of the universe. It, it's an incredibly right. point of view, That's but right. uh, ultimately, to me, that signifies, guys, that we are nothing but petulant children. Our entire species are just a bunch of petulant children who it's all about us. And if we screw up, then daddy and mommy will save our asses. And, and that's uh, what we have to move away from, right? Yeah, right. We have to recognize we are all one. There is but one life force. We are all a part of it. And we are, we must begin to pull and work together. We are individual aspects of one intelligence. And to say that we are special little romper room doobies, we're going to have to put the ego aside, this petulant, childish ego. I would love to be an optimist about this, Brad and Gene, but I'm a pragmatist at the end of the day. And I think that maybe we've lost our way. Maybe. We have become so indoctrinated by the television, the cathode ray tube, as they say in Videodrome, the church of the cathode ray tube, the purity of it, which ultimately, and let's throw out the crazy theories on the table because it's that part of the show where, hey, gee, maybe television and the cathode ray tube was indeed engineered to appeal to our optic nerves, to mesmerize us outside of our own will, to capture us in a way that apparently no technology ever has. To you can certainly make that argument. You can certainly, certainly make do that it. Argument. People say, well, you know, that's crazy talk. And I say to them, go watch a group of 10, 12, and 13-year-old boys and girls watching television. You pretty much have to have a cat explode in the corner for them to turn away from that. Well, we just they hope that the writers stay on strike then. Well, and by the way, why do we see the proliferation of paranormal shows? Gee, they don't need writers. Gee, that's reality TV with a slight twist. Let's get those shows on now. Quick, 
Somebody call David Sarita and throw him on a show. Yeah, yeah, I know what they are. I saw one when I was eight years old, and it came and programmed my mind, and now I think that my dog is God, which he says in his stupid frickin' documentary, mockumentary, I like to think of it as, because that is the level of discourse of this topic. And I can hear the listeners now going, uh-oh, yeah, he's ranting again. He's lost it. Uh-oh, he's getting all angry. He's freaking out. You know, on a, on a forum online, I was recently accused of having no sense of humor about this, that I took all of this too seriously. And I responded to them saying, you know, when you have this stuff intertwined in your life against your will, you have this paranormal reality twisted into your reality. It's not like you see this as just another form of entertainment. This is not some TV show you can turn on or off. When this stuff touches your life, and ultimately, gentlemen, I believe that the only way to really enter into this quest is at a very personal level. I think that in the end, what we're going to find out is that there's aspects of the paranormal that are highly personal, that are meant to guide us individually, even though we are potentially part of one big thing, which is not that hard to realize. All we have to do is look at an image of the planet Earth taken from outer space and look back and think, you know, we all are part of something, this little blue sphere, and we're all here. That's it. We can say whatever we want about our technology, but gee, if you kill the oceans... That's it for humanity. We're done. We have no off-world presence that we know of. We're, we're stuck oh, here. What, and what I would it. add to that, David, is, as you say, it is a personal quest. But that doesn't mean that we put our personal ego above others. Yeah. It well. is a personal quest. So I still, as I said, I started an optimist. I've had that optimism blunted and kind of shattered. But I like to think I'm a pragmatic op- optimist. And that if we continue as we're doing now, in, even in this way of getting out the paracast, talking, having these discussions, I have to have faith. I have to have faith that we're getting through to people, that some people are listening and saying, you know, I hadn't looked at it that way before. And I'm going to look at the world through a new vision and a new concept, a new reality. And I think that's what we're talking about, is offering a new reality and a new vision to people. We're just about out of time, Brad, but I wanted to give you a moment here to talk about your latest articles, books, whatever you want to plug, go for it. <laughs> Sell something. I, I think we've been talking about them. Thank you. A shadow world, Atlantis rising, worlds before our own are all books of mine that came out in the 70s and 60s, and I have been blessed, I feel, by a group of people who said, you know, these books changed my life. These books put me into this entire field, and we want to bring them back. And so I thank those people who are who believed enough in me way back then and are bringing the book out for a whole new generation, a whole new audience. And people, I must say, are responding even more enthusiastically than they did in the 60s and 70s. And I think uh, we've all had a part in that. We've all done our bit to open awareness and open people's thoughts and minds to a greater reality. Well, and we thank you for all the hard work you've done, Brad Steiger, in opening us all to this greater, larger reality. Thank you so much for spending this evening with us on the PowerCast. My pleasure indeed, gentlemen. Thank you, Brad. Always a pleasure having you on. Thank you. Always a pleasure to be on. The PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney 
is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast. You have been listening to PSI Saturday, Explorations in Paranormal Research. Today you heard Gene Steinberg and David Biedney of theparacast.com interview world-renowned paranormal author Brad Steiger. Today's show was broadcast courtesy of theparacast.com, and it is archived there. You can listen to the latest show from theparacast.com broadcast every Sunday at 6 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Central, 9 p.m. Eastern, and on Mondays at 0200 hours GMT. Go to theparacast.com to listen. And be sure to join us next Saturday for another edition of PSI Saturday, Explorations in Paranormal Research, right here on No Lies Radio. PSI Saturday is broadcast every Saturday at 7 p.m. Pacific, 10 p.m. Eastern, and 0300 hours GMT Sunday. We're thrilled that you're listening to this archived episode of the Paracast. If you want to hear the latest shows, click on over to www.theparacast.com. You can also join in on the most intelligent and dynamic discussions on our forums regarding all of the topics we discuss on the Paracast. So remember, www.theparacast.com. We'll see you there soon.